Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, weirdos. It's Rachel. Before we get into the show, this is just your quick reminder that our next live performance is going to be at Caveat in New York City on Halloween. Yes, it's going to be super spooky and wonderful and weird Thursday, October 31st. Come have some drinks, wear costumes, bonus points if you uh, get some inspiration from a Weirdest Thing episode, which I definitely have. And my costume's going to be really good. So bring it. Anyway, it would be super weird to do it without you, so we hope you'll buy your tickets soon. You can go to Caveat's website or look for the ticket link at popsidecom slash weird. We always sell out, so get those tickets fast. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured... Why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Chodosh. I'm Helen Zaltzman. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. As many of our listeners will already know, uh, Helen is the host of The Allusionist, a wonderful Radiotopia podcast about language. Uh, Helen, thank you for joining us. We know that you have learned many weird things in the course of your <laughs> So we're really excited to have you share some of them. Thank you. I will warn you that I tend to also forget things almost immediately. So there's very little in my brain at any given time. I think that's nice because you kind of get to rediscover the weird things over and over again. Very true, yes. Yeah. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, making great, hilarious podcasts, etc. And we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, 
Welcome to the studio. It's been a while. Thank you so much. It's, it's good to be here physically <laughs> in to person. Be recording somewhere other than under a blanket. I love it. This is a room is so much better. It's much less hot. <laughs> well, we are super psyched to have you here recording without Skype lag. Why don't you start with your tease? My fact this week is about how we repeatedly discovered and then lost and then discovered and then misunderstood and then lost and then discovered again the cure for scurvy. <laughs> wow, that was careless. It's a saga, yeah. <laughs> An incre- like the simplest cure ever, but somehow. Were you counting precisely the number of rediscoveries um, or was that kind of we'll say We'll say yes. Okay. Why not? <laughs> All right. Just curious. My tease is that this is a story about my hometown, which is the part of New Jersey that like Springsteen songs are about, and also one of the birthplaces of the American eugenics movement. You must be very proud. (laughs) (laughs) I love the boss. What can I say? Jersey's a beautiful place in so many ways. It is. It's great. Um, So yeah, I found (laughs) I got more than I bargained for with this one. Helen. Uh, Well, mine is about the changing uses of the word bisexual, which has applied to so many things, including oysters and space stations. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) I would have thought that would be a pretty straightforward word. Oh, no. Bisexual. It is. uh, It's had a torrid time. Wow. Haven't we all? (laughs) Sarah, why don't you start with the, the many, many iterations of scurvy. I, I would have thought that would have been a pretty straightforward one as well. So I, I would have thought so as well. Also because like because we know now that scurvy is just a, a deficiency of vitamin C, I in my head it was always this like kind of mild thing, like you'd everyone got scurvy, but like this scurvy. Who cares? <laughs> it was just all the rage then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just very popular. But scurvy killed more sailors than all other causes of death combined. It killed two million sailors between like 1500 and 1800. Which more is than like, syphilis? More than syphilis, wow. which given the amount of syphilis <laughs> was incredible. How long does it take scurvy to kill you? It takes like a month for the symptoms to start for you to like run out of vitamin C. And then it takes, I think, potentially weeks longer to kill you. But I think you you wish for an earlier death. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so the, like, story about scurvy I always heard was that, like, James Lind, who was a, a Scottish doctor, was, you know, considered to have cured scurvy in 1747 because he did this very famous experiment where he took like 12 men with scurvy and assigned them six different remedies, including drinking half a pint of seawater, ingesting... Great way to vomit. Yeah, yeah, an excellent treatment. Also drinking elixir of vitriol, which is a mixture of alcohol and sulfuric acid. Also a great way to vomit. He just really, really thought that purging was the way to go. Well, I suppose you wouldn't die of scurvy if you drank that. Yeah, you might you might dive something else faster, which mm. could have could have been in a cure in some ways. And then one of the other treatments being eating two oranges and a lemon per day for a week. And by the end of the week, the people who ate the citrus were absolutely one hundred percent cured, and everyone else was still dying. I've, I've always been curious as to how they ate the lemon because eating a lemon is a challenging hmm. fruit. I suspect that when you have scurvy. It's fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Comparatively. That's a good point, though. I'll be honest. I love lemons. I could eat a whole lemon. So mm. that hadn't even occurred to me that that might not be a pleasurable experience for some people. I love them. Sorry. When yeah. I, we, need to, we need to. When I was a baby, my mom did the thing where, like, you give your baby a lemon because it's cute. It's funny because they hilarious hate it. And they hate it. And she gave me a lemon. And I was like, hmm. 
Oh, yeah. wow. I'm digging this. This is great. And I still love lemons. They're wow. a great fruit. This, the idea of eating a whole one seems to me potentially a tricky thing. You would think. Um, Not for you. You're highly evolved. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, would, I will you. never get scurvy, which is incredible. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that story, like, is true. But it is also true that sailors had been, like, accidentally rediscovering this for centuries prior. And it still took 50 years after that for the British Navy to implement a diet regimen of lemon juice. And then even still after that, they forgot <laughs> about the importance of lemons. It's just incredible. Like in the 1400s, Vasco da Gama's crew were given oranges like as a gift after they visited Kenya. And they realized, like, hey, when they ate the oranges, all they the scurvy went away. <laughs> and Which I guess until then had just been called, like, being a sailor. Yeah. Probably wasn't scurvy. It was just... Yeah. I mean, like, 50%, like, just it was expected 50% right. of your crew would die of well, scurvy. I suppose it depends on where you're going, because if you're not going to one of the major citrus-producing regions, yeah. if you're sailing to, like, Greenland, you're really shit out of luck, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what were you supposed to do? But they discovered the oranges, and then after that, they would, anywhere they visited that had citrus, they were like, hey, could we get some oranges? Because... They're pretty useful last time. And, like, another Portuguese explorer did the same thing also in Kenya. Kenya really saved the lives of a lot of Portuguese soldiers. An English captain, like, accidentally did an experiment where he fed, like, his ship of four in a fleet. He had them drink lemon juice. I don't know why if he didn't think it prevented scurvy, but he insisted on lemon juice. fun prank. Yeah. And, you know, when they got to their next destination, his crew members were all fine. Everyone else was like literally had to be helped off the ship because they couldn't walk anymore. But yeah, I mean, scurvy, I should also say like the symptoms of scurvy are bad. They're bad. They're so bad. (laughs) What happens? Wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. So like it kind of starts where you're just like really tired. You feel very weak. It was like to the point that people felt at one point that laziness was the cause of scurvy. You just refused to do your work and were afflicted with this terrible disease. And you get like bone aches. You start bleeding internally because you can't produce collagen if you don't have vitamin okay, C. Until then, it sounded like my life. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, now I'm and then you start bleeding internally. Right. And, um, yeah, your your gums start to, like, disintegrate mm. and Ooh. your teeth get all loose so you can't really eat anyway. Your limbs swell and then eventually you die, probably of, like, a, an aneurysm or some other kind of internal hemorrhage. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's astounding to me that scurvy was so horrifying, but that somehow, like, when people discovered how to fix it, it didn't spread instantly all the way around the world. But after Dr. Lind published his findings, the British Navy spent 50 years just kind of, like, debating, I don't know, maybe it didn't really seem all that, all that effective. People thought, well, maybe it's just, like, a lack of fresh air. But eventually, in the late 1700s, the Navy said, you know, every day you're going to have this amount of lemon juice. And it gave them, like, a massive advantage fighting the French because they all, none of them had scurvy. And it turns out when you're fighting a battle against people who are mostly dying, you win. Um, Go figure. Yeah, it's also where the nickname Limey comes from. Right, right. Originally meaning a sailor and then eventually meaning a British person for some reason. So lemons are very high in vitamin C, and it was originally lemons that, that Lind tested. But they also called lemon juice lime juice because at the time, lemons and limes were just sort of generic terms for those things. Mm. And they didn't realize that they were actually different plants, like fundamentally. And that turned out to be a really terrible mistake. Um, <laughs> because... Um, 
later on when like they so they originally got lemons like from Sicily like places in Europe around the Mediterranean but then eventually they realized that as the British navy they controlled a lot of places where they grew limes and they were much cheaper and so they stopped buying their limes from Europe and started just taking the limes from the people that they had colonized mm-hmm. and Limes do not have that much vitamin C. <laughs> oh, oops. They have about a quarter of that the vitamin C. That seems fair, though, given, yeah, given the situation. Yeah, they, they, had a go, they had a comment to them. Should have uh, colonized different countries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If only they had taken over more of the world. Anyway, so they started using limes, but their kind of saving grace at the time was that that was like 1860 when they sort of started switching to that. And by that time, people weren't making like many month-long journeys by sea. Ships could sail a lot faster, and they just weren't really getting scurvy, as it turns out, because the journeys were shorter. But mm-hmm. they thought it was the limes, that the limes were fine. And then they started going to like the Arctic. And... <sighs> You can't. There's nowhere to stop <laughs> and pick up some lemons up there. there You're really are, stuck. There are not native limes or lemons in the Arctic. So, like, in the late 1800s, they had a couple of, I mean, there were these very long Arctic expeditions, and the crew brought lime juice with them. And they ate their lime juice every day, like the good explorers that they were, and yet somehow they were all dying of scurvy. Because the unfortunate thing is that... A, it was a really long expedition, and uh, B, on polar expeditions, you don't have a lot of other fresh meat and veggies, and there's lots mm. of other things that contain, you know, not as high amounts of vitamin C as lemons do, but, like, fresh meat, fresh organ meat has mm-hmm. uh, potentially fatal amounts of, of vitamins in it, and the crews who didn't like fresh meat, like, there were there was at least one expedition where the crew that, like, went out onto the actual expedition decided that they didn't want to eat, like, polar bear meat. But the crew on the ship were cool with it. And the crew on the ship was totally fine. But then that just confused the whole matter because then it seemed like, well, everybody was having lime juice. But only some people were eating fresh meat. So, like, maybe it was the meat. It seemed like meat was definitely the issue Mm -hmm. to the point where by the early 1900s, the prevailing theory was that it was definitely something about the meat. Like, maybe there was something that spoiled the meat was the theory. Mm -hmm. And so that was the fresh meat thing. You had to have it fresh when really it was just, like, fresh meat doesn't have bacteria that kills you. (laughs) And also the vitamin C doesn't have any time to break down. So... By the 1900s, like, they had just completely backtracked and just completely lost track of the fact that they had totally found the cure for this incredibly (laughs) simple disease. And then the actual cure for scurvy was discovered totally by accident because two Norwegian researchers were trying to study beriberi, which is another vitamin deficiency, a deficiency of thymine or vitamin B1. And... They were studying it in pigeons because pigeons are an animal that also gets beriberi. And in pigeons, if you feed them like only grain, they get beriberi. Mm -hmm. But they decided that they wanted to have like a mammal model. So they started feeding guinea pigs grains. And the guinea pigs didn't get beriberi, but they did get scurvy. And they were like, ah, well, we've accidentally (laughs) discovered a really good animal model for this disease that is still really plaguing people. And that was pure luck because most animals, like the vast majority of animals, can make their own vitamin C. But guinea pigs are one of the few that don't. Hmm. So they had like this very simple animal model. And then like not very long after, a Hungarian biochemist isolated ascorbic acid, a.k.a. vitamin C. And the whole problem was entirely solved. Wow. Accidentally because of guinea pigs. Liter- <laughs> literal guinea pigs. <laughs> 
So the lack of vitamin C also like messes with your serotonin and dopamine neurotransmitters. So apparently also like explorers who had insufficient vitamin levels and were starving and all they wanted was food. Like one of the consequences is that you have very vivid dreams. So they would have these dreams and they would dream about food to the point where they like hallucinated that there was food in front of them and they would wake up and like reach for the food and then it wouldn't be there, which is just crushing. Yeah, that's horrifying. Yeah, well, it gets you in every way. Great. On that note, <laughs> we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. And uh, I'm going to jump in with my fact, just a lighthearted romp about the American eugenics movement. As I've mentioned several times on Weirdest Thing, because it bothers me a lot and I like to talk about it, you know, America really, we made eugenics a thing. You know, we, we like to forget about how the Nazis were inspired and enriched by the work of American scientists that was all totally mainstream And I don't think that's something we should forget. So it's come up a few times. We had our episode about sideshow babies. We had our episode about the wave of nude air bathing among the founding fathers. That ended up being about eugenics. So here's one that's about my hometown. Vineland, New Jersey, where I'm from, is a very strange place. I'm from the pocket of South Jersey that's, like, weirdly Southern. But there are a lot of crazy things about Vineland, and I don't know if it's just because I'm, like, a person who's interested in in learning about the place I'm from. I'm kind of like, is everybody's hometown actually this crazy, or is Vineland surprisingly crazy? I think it might be surprisingly crazy. It was founded in 1861 as a temperance utopia by this guy named Charles K. Landis, who, like, I could tell a whole other story about how he was probably the first person to plead temporary insanity after he shot a newspaper editor for libeling his wife. Wow. But that's not what this story is about. Okay, well, for another (laughs) podcast, perhaps. So Vineland did not pan out as a temperance town, but Vineland's rolling agricultural pastures and healthy climate did attract a lot of, like, intellectuals, or at least a handful of them. And the Vineland Training School, which is this big residential special needs school and institution that is still thriving today, uh, founded on this beautiful mansion, 40 acres of land. It's lovely, right in the center of town. Of course, in 1888, it was not called the Vineland Training School. It was called the New Jersey Home for the Education and Care of Feeble-Minded Children, because that is how people talk then. And this story started because growing up, I had heard that this guy who worked at that institution, he was actually the director from 1906 to 1918, named Henry H. Goddard, that he had invented the word moron, which actually has like, you know, very dark psychiatric history. And so everybody had kind of shared that as like a funny fact that like, we're the (laughs) moron capital of the world, because of course now moron is a totally non-medical term, but it in fact had a very clinical use and was a super offensive term. So Henry Goddard was really into intelligence testing, and he had the best of intentions in the way a lot of uh, (laughs) medicine did at that time. He really supported the idea of having some kind of intervention for people who had cognitive impairments or who, you know, needed extra assistance. And he said the only way you could possibly truly help them would be to have some way of testing how much help people needed. 
And so he like sought out these kinds of early intelligence tests that were being used in Europe, and he really popularized the IQ test in the U.S. And spoiler alert, that was very bad. <laughs> it was not a good move. But part of his obsession with IQ, he developed the term moron to be a specific level of impairment above idiot, which was also wow. a term that he used clinically. And the moron was, he said, society's biggest problem because while an idiot would generally just sit and be institutionalized and be cared for, a moron could walk amongst us and could have children. Oh, no. Yes, <laughs> exactly. All of this, in retrospect, it seems like really straightforward. Like when you start categorizing people this way and saying, like, we should test people to decide how fit they are to be part of society, it is very easy to see where that slippery slope leads. Mm. And it leads to terrible shit. Henry Goddard did not have that hindsight or even that insight. And so he became this really big advocate for intelligence testing and was cited as an expert and his work was cited in the creation of laws in more than half the states in the U.S., which legalized sterilization of the, quote, unfit, which led to tens of thousands of involuntary sterilization surgeries. And in Ellis Island, actually, he was a big advocate of, like, keeping an eye out for morons at Ellis Island. And he trained all of these female field assistants, which is just so like hashtag white feminism, that he was like, <laughs> we're employing the good women who have just graduated from university to go find the unfit people. Um, just, this hunches. just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah, yeah. No, not ideal. No, no. And he came back with all this data about how 40% of Jews, Italians, and Hungarians were qualified as morons. But he didn't say that he had told his field workers to only seek out and test people that looked supposedly like morons. Mm, the a very <laughs> unbiased sample. Right. So 40, what's really the story here is that 60% of <laughs> the people the who looked immigrants like they that they were like, hmm, you look like you might be a little slow, were fine, totally fine. <laughs> So And that data was used, it was spread as if he had used like large sample sizes of the general population. So that was part of a lot of anti-immigration propaganda. So yes, all of this is eugenics. And the thing that I was not aware of before I started looking into Goddard's invention of the word moron, which is, of course, from a Greek word for dull. He didn't just like pull it out of thin air, but he was the first one to be like, I'm using this. He was very into making up words from Greek words for his bad experiments, which is how we get to the Kalakak family, which is a book that he published in 1912, which was part of this whole genre of eugenic family narratives, which was where scientists, air quotes, were getting very into these pseudoscientific genealogies that were supposedly supporting the idea that certain people just, like, would propagate unfitness in in the population. So Stephen Jay Gould, who was a science historian and, and writer, he called the Kalakak family the primal myth of the eugenics movement. So not good. <laughs> the reason that the Kalakak story, which was just one of these, like, you know, tracing back the history of, of a patient in Vineland, like so many of these other books, the reason that it was so wildly popular was that he claimed to have found the perfect natural experiment. He claimed that 
when he'd sent some of his lady field workers out looking for more data on this one patient of his who he referred to as Deborah Kalkak, and I'll uh, talk about her more in a minute, he said that they found, as expected, you know, this long line of just terrible people, you know, real not intelligent, ne'er-do-wells, getting up to no good. Spreading their doing genes. Doing crime, having babies that did crime. <laughs> so he claimed they all found them, but then they found all these other people with the same last name who seemed fine. And instead of saying, maybe this means there's nothing to the whole eugenics angle, they traced back, supposedly, to this ancestor that they dubbed Martin Kalakak, who'd been like a nice young boy, and he'd had an affair with a tavern girl of ill repute. Of course, it's then a tavern girl. <laughs> then he'd reformed and married a worthy Quaker. And as you can see from this diagram, that made the good family and the bad family. So they were like, this is our perfect example of how eugenics works because this good, reputable man, you know, his, his great seed was wasted on the—he dallied with a feeble-minded tavern girl. That's the exact wording. And so that whole lineage is terrible. But then, you know, when he was did his, his Christian duty and married a lovely lady who brings up seven upright worthy children for him, they're all doctors, lawyers, bankers, landowners. Were they really, though? No. (laughs) The twist. Yeah. So the twist here is that it was all made up. Boo. (laughs) Yeah. What a surprise. Yeah. So the issue here is that, for starters, I found this excellent paper by J. David Smith and Michael L. Wimeyer, where they talk about how Deborah Kalakak, whose name, by the way, was another of Goddard's fun little... (laughs) fun little made-up words. It was, he took the Greek words kalos for beauty and kakos for bad. So they were the good bad family. (laughs) So Deborah Kalkak was actually Emma Wolverton, who was totally fine. I mean, yes, she lived in this institution. It was a very different time. Like the, the bar was set pretty low for someone deciding you should go live in an institution. She was illiterate when she got there, but learned to read and write. She worked. She like volunteered as a nurse occasionally. And so first of all, the idea that she was this like unwell and had all these cognitive impairments was just unfounded. Then there's the fact that tracing back her family line, there was no illegitimate son that started a second wave of the family. That part was just apparently totally made up. There were cousins, some of whom had good lives and some of whom had bad lives. But on the supposedly bad side of the family that Emma was on, there were landowners. There was like an army pilot. There were teachers. In other words, a normal family <laughs> with an average distribution of people in circumstances and jobs. Emma had ended up institutionalized in part because her mother did have a pretty rough life and had been like married and divorced multiple times. And it seems like she probably was like a bit of a problem teen But, like, they were very poor and times were very bad. And that 
really had nothing to do with the family they came from. It was circumstance and a lack of access to resources, uh, to education, to public support. You know, if Emma was considered simple when she got to the Vineland Training School, it was because she'd never gotten to go to school before. And she was reading and writing by the time that this book was published, supposedly about how she was the result of generations of bad seeds. Oh, just in time. Also, for all of the eugenics bullshit that was being researched and written about, like the actual environment at the Vineland School was quite progressive for the time. You know, people learned trades and to read and had like beautiful grounds and friends. And so obviously she should not have been institutionalized, but she she did not have a horrible life except for this guy writing all this shit about her. But the thing that is, is crazy about this is that this book was a bestseller. And there are quotes from him saying like, yeah, we stretched the truth a bit, but like that's what you have to do to make the layman understand science, which is not true. Arrogance. (laughs) Yeah. And it really hammered home to me, you know, reading more about this, how many of the people involved in the American eugenics movement, like, really thought they had the best of intentions and also how interwoven it is in so much of our history. You know, we were talking about the history of birth control a couple episodes ago and talking about Margaret Sanger, who was hugely into eugenics. Basically, most people who were like intellectuals with money loved eugenics. They thought it was just so reasonable. It was considered like a step forward in in enlightenment and just a totally logical thing that nobody could argue with. And of course, there were degrees in the extent to which people like argued for particular policies like sterilization or institutionalization. But yeah, it was just considered totally mainstream. And there's one thing that I was totally unfamiliar with that I learned in reading this. So the Scopes trial, the like monkey trial where a teacher was prosecuted for teaching evolution, the textbook that he was defending had a bunch of eugenics in it. It it cited the Calicac book as like uh, proof that eugenics was real. And tons of people and and sources did. Really, it wasn't until after World War II when a lot of the American eugenics movement was like, oh, we don't look so good next better, to that. <laughs> better revise our yeah. history a little. And, but I think the important thing to remember is that a lot of it was just like revision. You know, the, the policies didn't really change for very long. There was forced sterilization and, and institutionalization for a long time after World War II. It's just that the very vocal eugenics movement by that name kind of like was like, ooh, oh no. <laughs> ooh, maybe ooh. not. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, Hitler loved the book about the Calicacs. He mentioned it. It was printed in, in Germany the same year he rose to power. And we'll just keep reminding people that Americans thought eugenics was just like, not just that they liked it, but that it was like totally irrefutable and mainstream. I just think it's important that we ask ourselves like what things we're starting to think of as totally irrefutable and mainstream or maybe not. This is more proof that every part of the history of like both IQ testing and then by extension like SAT and other standardized testing, like it's just all terrible. It's all based on shoddy science. Yeah. Well, you you wrote about IQ testing. Would you would you summarize your your thoughts on IQ testing based on the data? My thoughts on IQ testing is that IQ testing is the biggest load of bullshit that I've ever heard of. (laughs) And it's, but it's like, I've met some, I've, I'd say it's a very small minority of people who, when I talk about IQ testing, have any sense that it might be even a little bit wrong. Like people, I just feel like everyone talks about it like, 
oh, yeah, like, you know, obviously some people are smarter than other people. And so IQ is real and the average is 100. And look at these super geniuses who are in Mensa. Like, ugh, it's just all it's all so terrible. IQ is bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. If I could make one thing go away, <laughs> I probably okay. It wouldn't for, be IQ for people but, who who aren't aware. What's your what's your like twenty second explanation of of why we know IQ is bad? If IQ is supposed to be a fundamental, an intrinsic trait that you have, then uh, IQ shouldn't be changing rapidly. But you see massive changes in IQ, especially in developing nations, mm-hmm. and that's like basically the result of the fact that a if you give a bunch of people a test and those people don't usually use pencils or paper or don't take standardized tests, they don't do that well on those tests. And that doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. It means that they're not good at taking your test. But for decades, researchers interpreted that as, well, some people are just fundamentally less intelligent. Obviously, this fits in with everything we've always believed about races and who is better than who and and also better nutrition. Like mm-hmm. if you've been malnourished your entire childhood, your brain can't develop to its full potential. And also you're just probably a lot more concerned with other things than taking a test, like mm, getting food. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so as like as nutrition has improved massively and like if you just train people to take the test, they do better on the test, which would imply that it's not a great test. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. That was what I was you're looking for. You're so welcome. <laughs> so yeah, in summary, Vineland, New Jersey, home of the inventor of the mason jar, the inventor of the word moron, the movie Eddie and the Cruisers, and me. So I think I win. I think I'm the best. I think variety. I, I think I'm. I mean, second to the mason jar, maybe the best thing that's ever come out of Vineland, New Jersey. Yeah, fight me. <laughs> I, I would put you above Mason Jar. I could oh, do, with, I could do without the Mason Jar. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Helen's Fact. All right. We're back. And Helen. Hi. Hi. We're going to talk about some words. Yeah. Well, I learned, thanks to uh, someone called Mark Wilkinson, who came on The Illusionist, I learned about the many other uses of the word bisexual before it came to mean a human sexual identity. Mm-hmm. It has had quite the life. And um, so originally it meant hermaphroditic. It was mm-hmm. a biological term. So it's like creatures with characteristics of two sexes were bisexual. So like oysters, various plants and tube worms, things like that. Mm-hmm. Bisexuous, that was also a term. Bisexuous, oh, I, like that. I love yeah. that. It's we great. should bring that back. Yeah, I like it. You could. I don't know if anyone's using it for it. Maybe in biology, but so wow. was it? Where was the overlap between referring to those animals as having hermaphroditism versus being bisexual? Well, being bisexual, as in uh, the attraction. Do you mean, I mean no? So, like using if using the term bisexual mm. to mean that they had characteristics of both so sexes. That was a. Uh, It goes back to 1824. Okay. So most of the 19th century, it was just hermaphroditic Mm -hmm. organisms and creatures, Mm -hmm. but not humans. The first known application to humans was in 1892. There was an English translation of Richard von Kraft Ebbing's 1886 book, Psychopathia Sexualis, which was a very significant book in the field of sexology. And it was the first appearance in English of terms such as heterosexuality sadist and masochist and bisexual 
But it did also say that any sex for purposes other than procreation was perversion. So, sure. uh, you I, know. I figured with that name, it either goes one of two ways. <laughs> it's either really dope or really yeah, exactly. awful. Yeah. Well, like when I, I, we talked about just like paraphilias in general. And we talked about how like until like just a few decades ago in the DSM, like being gay was listed as, as some kind of condition. And it was, so, a, it was a psychiatric illness until what's it? 1974, yeah. I think it was declassified in the States. Yeah. And in the same classifications of, of paraphilias, like enjoying dirty phone calls was listed oh, <laughs> as a, no. as a, oh. as a uh, condition. It was just, uh, we had a very wide sense of, of what was deviant. It was really just anything like anything you could do. Stri- very <laughs> heterosexual, <laughs> very vanilla sex. And Well, yeah. anything was deviant except for going into a church and self-flagellating for yes. your mortal sin. That mm-hmm. as well. Puritans really ruined... All the fun, didn't they? Yes. They did. For so long, for yes. so many people. It still sticks in people's minds now. Yeah. There's still so much shame. Although dirty phone calls, maybe now you wouldn't bother going to get treatment for that. <laughs> no. I suppose God, unless I you're pastoring not. people. If they're because consensual it, dirty phone calls. Right. Yes. It depends on the dirty phone call. Well, no yes. one makes phone calls anymore, do they? That's right. They'd be like, something's yeah. wrong with you. So that was a fix. But um, that, the word didn't really catch on as a sexual orientation label because like Kinsey report was hugely influential, but he didn't use it. He used mm. the numerical scale. He right. didn't like it because he was like, it means oysters and <laughs> things. <laughs> with, uh, There's too much oyster association yeah, there. But it was that. Maybe he didn't like oysters. Maybe he had an allergy. Mm. And so then around the, um, <laughs> around the middle of the 20th century, they were using it in all sorts of different ways. So one of them was bisexual situations. That just meant a situation where <laughs> men and women were present. <laughs> oh, <I was> like, <laughs> which, is that really an essential term? Or well, maybe because there was so much division. Of, I was going to uh, say, how mm. rare was that, that there was there needed to be a term specifically for a situation where men and women like Instead of saying, like, we're in mixed company, yeah. we're in a bisexual right. situation. Yeah. I kind of like that as well. Yeah, that is a term I will probably adopt. In 1967, someone describing a character in a novel sending bisexual letters, meaning he was writing letters to men and women. Wow. Again, you just think, why is that an essential bit of (laughs) vocabulary? And was it like, was there a derogatory sense of it? Like that was scandalous or was it just like a fact of like he sent letters to men and women and so that was bisexual? Yeah, that that wasn't, it wasn't about anything sexy there was nothing, sexual at all. Okay. No. The letters themselves were, were of a bisexual nature as they were yes. going to both sexes. <laughs> yes. And wow. yet there was no Purely sex logistical. Yeah, exactly. Okay. As sex is, right? It's <laughs> yes. purely about who letters are being received by. Um, and they also had bisexual musical instruments, but that was more the musical instrument's nature. And this is where I, I really got lost. So the flute and the drum are bisexual, but the violin and the cello are not. I did play flute, so, so that right. can, that, can confirm. That, that follows. I just didn't know that instruments were gendered yeah. in any way. Flute and the drum were yeah. bisexual. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going purely on, like, really boring gender binary stereotypes, the flute and the drum are the two that I would... I would I would make them very binary. Which, like which way would you gender them? I would go like just classic. I'm not saying that a flute is feminine. I'm just saying that like I think modern society would have said like a flute's high pitched. It's adorable. Right. It's tiny. Drums, big, loud, militaristic. Clanging, militaristic. Yeah. yeah. Whereas like a violin and a cello, 
they could go either way. They could go both <laughs> ways. <laughs> oh, no, I would have loved those. I'm not sure wh- which way they did go, according to this classification. <laughs> yeah. And they also said bisexual in the way that we might say unisex later, mm. where, where it's like bisexual fashions and bisexual hats. <laughs> oh my god the hats that can go both ways <laughs> what kind of oh, hats are it. those oh I think god. probably just I just, don't know what. Like, a, like a baseball cap I don't know Something I'm, I'm picturing like one of the macaroni hats that the macaroni mm. men wore <laughs> just like a knitted cap something that something very suits all and also there were other uses of like uh, bisexual parenting which meant it, you, it, they were talking about a single mother mm-hmm. and saying she was a bisexual parent in that she was fulfilling a masculine oh. role as well as the traditional feminine role, which felt kind of dismissive on in so many ways. Right. Not uh, that she could be, you know, a parent on her own without any gender associations at yeah. all. I thought she you were going to say she'd be an oyster. I thought you were going to say that bisexual parenting was when actually the mother and the father parented, because I feel like at that time dads were maybe not not so much into the parenting. Yeah, that would have been a huge shocker if you had exactly. Had that would be parenting. so. It would be so rare. Very <laughs> for the very man ahead to of really time. be that helpful <laughs> in so many ways. Bisexual parenting would have been ahead of its time. Yeah, and, yes. <laughs> and there was even talk of a bisexual god, but again, a god that kind of defied gender classification. Mm. Ah, who has a? That's interesting. I mean, because Judeo-Christian wise. Pretty, Seems like a pretty very male, yeah, cis male macho, yeah, god yeah. somehow without having any physical. Form but then there is, there is discussion of being like, why? That's arbitrary. Maybe, yeah, maybe that. So like, I definitely have have heard from Judeo Christian sources the concept of being like, God probably doesn't have a gender, being that. Why would it's you limit gone? yourself if you were totally. a god? Why would you stick to one? Yeah, but then why would you even invent? the binary system in the first place. Mm. So maybe you'd be like, well, ah, I didn't. Humans did. Mm, it was a test <laughs> and you failed. Mm. <laughs> there it is. Absolutely. <laughs> that feels right. So right up until like the 70s, they were still using it in kind of scientific mm-hmm. ways. And there was a description of a bisexual space station, which was to do with the docking. It was oh, uh, wow. the bisexual system that is neither male nor female in design, enabling any craft to dock on with any other craft. And you do think, because even now, I was trying to buy some microphone cables today, and it's like male to female XLR. And yeah. you're like, well, why don't you just describe those in terms that are not related to humans at all? <laughs> right. And I think that's such a, I think it's wild that we still use that. So, yes. And just so casually, like, yeah, well, the, you know. The penetrator is male. Yeah, obviously. It's a mic the cable. only one ever doing any penetrating must be the male. And so that's just logic. <laughs> God. Yeah. I, f- I feel like if it had been women inventing mic cable sales, because, I mean, don't wish to stereotype, but audio equipment still seems to be largely dominated by men. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that women would have come up with that terminology for the cable. Mm. No. No, we wouldn't have. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then, so the time when bisexual really kicks in, in the sense we recognise now, mm-hmm. like it had started so when you got the uh, the Christopher Street demonstrations mm-hmm. and the uh, first Pride, Brenda Howard was campaigning for B to be included in LGB at the time. But also happening around this time, as the word is taking off, you then get the AIDS crisis. Mm. And so Mark was studying appearances of bisexual in the Times newspaper in Britain, which is uh, sort of centre-right, but it's a fairly politically bland newspaper compared to a lot of them. And so because mm. he, he wanted something that wasn't like 
violently anti-sexuality things, right, uh, yeah. but also yeah. wasn't like way ahead of sure, yeah. the curve on it. And so he said at that point, it was always associated with, it was like gay and bisexual men, gay and bisexual mm. men, gay and bisexual men have got this disease, gay and bisexual men are vectors for this disease. So it, yeah. it's gone from being a fairly obscure term to being a terrifying term for people. So basically the word bisexual has just had a real rough time of it. Yeah. Because then after that, it's just the whole thing where people are like, you can't be bisexual. It's not a real thing. Prove it. Prove it at all times. <laughs> you just haven't decided yet. Obviously. <laughs> right. You exactly. Oh, or no, now you're reinforcing the gender binary. So oh, pansexual. No. Yeah, see, it's it's had such a difficult time. Maybe it was easier when it just meant musical instruments. And oysters. <laughs> I think we should go Tube back worms. to maybe being referring to oysters as bisexual. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to try to bring bisexuous back. It's just a nice word. <laughs> Wow, that was super interesting. What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? The most upsetting thing was yours, for sure. That was horrible. Yeah. Oh, wow, thanks. I do. I, I, my hometown is pretty horrible. Yeah. Well, the mason jars are okay. <laughs> yeah. Unless yeah. there were storing only morons in them or something. Yeah. I think monster as well used to be a similar kind of pejorative term for disability. Oh, yeah. Oh, so we're really? just riddled with these things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there are so many things that, like, people have no idea, have have such an upsetting and offensive history. Mm. And, you know, it's worth it's worth doing a quick Google. Yeah. <laughs> Just, Is it okay to say morons? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. This has been great fun. This was a joy. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.